0: Christadelphian Classics Podcast brought to you by Wilderness Voice, The Ways of Providence by Robert Roberts, Chapter 10, Moses, Continued. The Ways of Providence are plainly illustrated in several minor elements of the work of Moses. Firstly, there is the man on the throne of Egypt at the time when Moses was instructed to demand the liberation of Israel. A good deal depended upon the character of this man. If he had been a reasonable, pliable man, he might have complied with the demand too soon for the work to be done. It was necessary that he should refuse, that he should refuse obstinately many times, because the liberation of Israel was only one of several things that had to be accomplished by the work, entrusted to the hand of Moses. Had the liberation of Israel been the only object aimed at, a single day's destroying judgment on the Egyptians would have sufficed, after the example of Sennacherib's army decimated in a single night in the days of Hezekiah. But a higher object was aimed at, both as regards Israel, the Egyptians, the world at large, and posterity. This object is clearly defined several times in the course of the narrative. It's plainly exhibited in this simple statement, that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Exodus nine sixteen. Israel was sunk in idolatry, as we have seen. If Israel was bad, the Egyptians were worse. The Canaanitish nations were reeking in iniquity, and the world at large lay in darkness. Left to itself, this state of things must have resulted in the establishment of incorrigible barbarism. The purpose of God, which was declared to Moses, that ultimately he would fulfil the earth with his glory, Numbers 14, 21, Required that a beginning should be made then, in the exhibition of his power, in a way not to be mistaken. To allow of this exhibition, it was needful that there should be a plain issue between God and man, and resistance on the part of man and an ensuing struggle sufficiently prolonged and diversified to exclude the possibility of doubt as to the nature of the operation performed. God could have manifested his power by hurling the mountains from their base or cleaving the earth with terrible chasms or rending the air with deafening tempests of thunder or filling the heavens with terrific conflagration but this would not have got at the understanding of the people. It would have scared without instructing and would have passed out of memory as a mere freak of nature it was necessary that intelligence should be manifestly at work and this necessity could only be met by a situation that all could understand and that would allow of the works of God being seen in intelligible relation thereto. It would not have been possible to have devised a more effective combination of circumstances for such a purpose than what existed when Moses was commanded to address himself to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The combination had been slowly developed for the purpose by the incidents of the previous three centuries. Israel, beloved for their father's sake, were enslaved. And not only enslaved, but enslaved in the midst of the most civilised nation of the world at that age. To demand their release was at once to raise a simple and powerful question. And to fight such a question with Egypt was to conduct a struggle that would be visible to the eyes of all the world, much more so than it had taken place with any other nation at that time in the world's history. But for the effectual accomplishment of its object, it was needful that the government of Egypt should be firm in its opposition. This depended upon the character of the man in whom the government was vested. It is a marvel, then, that the preparation of that man should be a divine work? Nay, would not it have been evidence of the absence of divine supervision in the whole situation if the right sort of man had not been in the throne at such a time? The state of the case was declared in the words divinely addressed to Pharaoh through Moses was in harmony with the requirements of the situation. For this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Not only was he raised up and specially fitted for the part in which he had to perform, but then during the performance of that part he was operated on for its effectual performance. His heart was was hardened. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Exodus 7, 3-5 The difficulties that have been raised in connection with this matter are difficulties arising from wrong notions as to the nature of man and from the want of an enlightened apprehension of the prerogative of God in his relation to his works. If Pharaoh was immortal and made liable by his heart-hardening to the dreadful destiny depicted in the hellfire denunciation of orthodox sermonising, the divine work of raising him up and hardening his heart would at least be inscrutable in the sense That is, of being apparently inconsistent with what Yahweh had testified of his own character. But Pharaoh, being a piece of living clay, and all mankind in a state calling for some startling exhibition of the existence and authority of God, there is not only nothing difficult to understand, but a something to excite admiration in the development of a man and with the contrivance of a situation which should effectually ensure it. Any question of human right as against God is unanswerably disposed of by Paul in his famous argument. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who? the fact is beyond question that Pharaoh was raised up for the part he had to perform in connection with the work of Moses. And the usefulness of the fact arises from this that no one living in Egypt during the 30 or 40 years preceding the Exodus would have been aware from anything he saw or heard that the ruler of the country was the subject of divine work one way or the other. Had he watched from the beginning, seen him nursed as a baby, noted him under tutorship, followed him through the ways of youth to maturity and manhood, he would have detected nothing indicative of divine selection and preparation. All was apparently in the order of nature, yet the man was a divine work. It's easy turning forward from the contemplation of such a picture to realise that in our own day, such men as Louis Napoleon, Bismarck, the Pope, the Emperor of Russia, or such a woman as Queen Victoria, or anyone having any relation to the divine work of the latter days, Dr Thomas for instance, may equally be a divine development and be the subject of divine supervision though every element in their lives superficially viewed is thoroughly natural. The natural in such cases is the form of the divine hand, or rather the tool used by it. The user of the tool is not visible in the work done, and the tool is only a tool. The tool is invisibly guided in a way that seems to itself and others perfectly natural. Yet the work done is divine work because it's divinely planned and divinely supervised in its execution, though the agents are unconscious of their divine initiative. Such a view helps us to recognise the hand of God in current public affairs where the nature of man sees only proximate agency. Such a view can, of course, be prostituted to the result of claiming divinity for things which have nothing divine in them. But wisdom will know where to draw the line. All things are not divine, but some are which are apparently natural. We need not assume divine initiative for any action in particular, either in public life or in our own lives, though God may have to do with both or neither. Our business is to conform in all modesty with what God has required of us, but it's our comfort at the same time to know that matters and men and results may be of God, even if an apparently natural only. Our part is to commit our way to him in faith. We are helped thus to count upon and recognise the direction of God, where to the natural eye it is not visible. Next, we look at Israel in the time of Moses. The time of the promised liberation had come near, and accordingly the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty, and the land of Egypt, was filled with them. The more the Egyptians afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Exodus 1, seven twelve. 12. There was nothing manifestly divine in this. It was apparently a matter of natural fecundity and nothing more. Yet it is testified as a work of God. He increased his people greatly in Egypt, and made them stronger than their enemies. Psalm 105, 24 By the word of God the heavens were made, and when the same words, with prospering intent upon any people, the result is seen in the presence of a vigour apparently natural, and really natural in its form and mode of development, yet superinduced by divine volition at the roots. The presence of this volition is due to the difference between what God does and what he does not do. The exercise of it was manifest in the case of Israel in a debased state in Egypt because the time for God's work with them had drawn near. May we not apply the fact to our own day? The time for the return of mercy to Zion has come. The time for God who scattered Israel to gather them. And... We see we nothing divine in the lively vigour and prolificness and growing prosperity of the Jews in every land? It is all apparently natural, but the hand of God is in it, and will shortly be made manifest to all nations when that hand is no longer hidden, but taken out of the bosom and uplifted in visible works of power before the eyes of all the nations. Israel experienced the difference between God's being with them and his not being with them when they attempted to make war against the Amalekites contrary to the command of Moses after the report of the spies. It will be recollected that, after hearing the report, they refused to invade the land and became mutinous against Moses. They were then condemned to wander in the wilderness 40 years till the adult generation should die out of the congregation. On hearing this, they were filled with consternation and clamorously offered to enter at once into the work of invasion which they had declined. Moses said, Wherefore now do ye transgress the commandment of the Lord? But it shall not prosper. Go not up, for the Lord is not among you. Numbers 14, 41. But they disregarded this and issued from the camp in military array. Then the Amalekites came down and the Canaanites which dwell in the hill and smote them and discomfited them even unto Hormah. Verse 45. Had God been with them then, the Amalekites would have quailed and Israel would have stood firm to their work and gone forward victoriously. But in God's absence... The case was reverse. The natural agency in the one case and in the other was the same, but when God is with the agency employed, that agency is supplemented with an invisible power of direction and efficiency that is lacking when God wills against it. And the agency, though feeble in itself, will be powerful against all odds. This Asa, king of Judah, recognized when he said on the approach of the Ethiopian horde against Jerusalem, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. 2 Chronicles fourteen, eleven to 12 On another occasion, later in his reign, Asa relied on the king of Syria and not on the Lord his God, which invoked the interrogatory from the prophet sent to him, Were not the Egyptians and the Lubims a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand? For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. Herein thou hast done foolishly. Therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars." 16.7-9 Sixteen, seven to nine, this principle was recognized by Jonathan when he proposed to his armor-bearer a forlorn attempt against the Philistine garrison at Micmash. It may be that the Lord will work for us for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. First to Samuel fourteen six, it was recognized by David when he went against Goliath. Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield, but I come unto thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and all this assembly shall know, that the Lord saveth not with the sword and spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. 1 Samuel 17, 45-47 David gives frequent expressions to the same principle in the Psalms. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. 20 verse 7 There is no king save by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any in his great strength. 33.16 Except the Lord build the house, they labour in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. There might be a tendency to conclude that in such a view of matters human agency is superfluous and indeed displaced and that the only thing left for a man to do is just do nothing but stand still and see what God will do. Such a view has in fact been acted on in many instances. It's a mistaken view altogether as we've seen in previous chapters. It seems to result from one aspect of the matter, but we must not limit our view of any subject to one aspect of the matter. We must take all sides into account. The other side in this case is the revelation that in working with a man, God wills that man should do his part humbly, faithfully and diligently, and that God's part should. The other side in this case is the revelation that in working with a man, God wills that a man should do his part humbly, faithfully and diligently, and that God's part should come in as a supplement or addition to what man does. We might pause with profit to consider the admirable wisdom of a principle of action which, while making effectual results depend upon God, admits man to the pleasure of cooperation in the process by which they are worked out and compels him to perform this advantage-yielding part. Our aim is not so much to discuss the philosophy of God's ways, however, as to exhibit what they are. Israel were made very distinctly to recognise that while they could do nothing if God were not with them, yet God could not, in a sense, do his part unless they did theirs. God said to Moses in the beginning of their enterprise, I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, etc. Exodus 33 2, from which it might have been concluded there was nothing for Israel to do. The very reverse was the case. God meant to do his work by them. Moses told them, Every place wherein the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. There shall no man be able to stand before you, for the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that ye shall tread upon, as he hath said unto you. Deuteronomy 11, 24, 25. The matter was made still plainer when Moses was dead. God then spoke to Joshua as follows, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that I have given unto you, as I said unto Moses, only be thou strong and very courageous. Joshua 1, 2, 7. In no plainer way could the principle have been enunciated that God requires men to do their part as the conditions and means of establishing him to work out his purpose with and concerning them. It is a principle illustrated throughout the entire course of scripture, culminating in the command to work out our own salvation, coupled with the insurance that God works with and in us to will and to to do of his good pleasure. It is a noble and beneficent principle, tending to keep back man from presumption and to prevent him from abusing God's help to his own destruction. It preserves the place for faith and wholesome activity while giving us the comfort of divine cooperation in all that we do according to his will. Man is liable to run into extremes. The assurance to Israel that the occupation of the land was dependent upon their taking possession of it was liable to inspire them with the idea that it was an affair of their own prowess, irrespective of God's cooperation. On more than one occasion there was a rude check to this misapplication of the truth, in the days of Gideon, when the Midianites had to be vanquished, God commanded the thinning down of the host he'd gathered, saying, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Judges 7 2. It will be remembered also that in the very beginning of Joshua's campaign against the Amorites, Israel were smitten at AI because God's commands had been disobeyed in an individual case in the matter of the spoil, and God said to Joshua, "The children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies because they were accursed, neither will I be with you any more except ye destroy the accursed from among you Joshua 712 The whole congregation of Israel in the wilderness had fearful illustration of the effect in a natural way of God's being not with them but against them. At the end of their forty years' wanderings were informed that among them all there was not a man of them whom Moses and Aaron the priest numbered at the beginning of the period. There was not left a man of them save Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Numbers 26, 64, 65 Moses tells us the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from among the host until they were consumed. Deuteronomy 2, 15 Must have been so for in the ordinary course out of the thousands of young men over 20 who were in the congregation at the very first numbering Many must have survived and lived years after the termination of the 40 years wandering. Yet, from day to day, while they were in the wilderness, nothing would be visible in the way of divine interference. They would drop off one by one in a natural way, just as they do in a great city today. In these and numerous other like ways was Israel taught the lesson that While the performance of their part was necessary to the accomplishment of God's purpose with them, the accomplishment of the purpose was all of God. And so, though Joshua fought and Israel conquered, David could write with emphatic truth, They got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them but thy right hand, and thine arm, and the light of thy countenance, because thou hadst a favour unto them. Psalm 44.3 Let us beware of the modern mistake of forgetting that these things were written for our admonition. God is the same today and forever. We must do our part with the wisdom and diligence we can command. But we must commit and commend all our matters in prayer and constant fear of God who can prosper or frustrate the devices of men or leave men altogether to their own devices like the regardless millions of the human race who are mostly like the cattle on a thousand hills.